Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gostola, and I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased to be joined by our guest this week. Uh, his name is Matthew Ho. He's a former Marine. Uh, he worked at the State Department and then resigned uh, in 2009 in, in, in protest um, over the Afghanistan war. And then um, he now works with a variety of peace and justice social groups. So we're very happy to have you, Matthew. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Matthew, it's really exciting to have you on. We have so much that we want to talk to you about, especially somebody with your background and experience. And I want to start off with um, with the military, <laughs> specifically what's happened under Donald Trump. Uh, you know, there's so much opposition to everything Donald Trump does, as there should be, because he's really awful. But one thing, um, one thing that he has done has really continued to go under the radar and the media and you know, his opponents don't really care to challenge him on this. And that's the issue of expanding military operations. Um, and basically, like, the numbers are this. Bush dropped 70,000 bombs in five countries. That's the estimate. Obama dropped about 100,000 bombs in seven different countries and expanded our wars uh, to countries we're not even, you know, declared to be at war with. And under Trump, which I think this is absolutely staggering, um, he's expanded this pretty dramatically, and he's been he's dropped 44,000 bombs in his first year alone. So that, that comes out to 121 bombs a day uh, and basically killing people every 12 minutes. Um, that's an insane number. And so I just want to get your take on what, like, you know, what has happened under Trump. Has he, like, he's expanded the military-industrial complex, if you will. Um, and why does nobody give a shit? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it is. I think it's a number that's not fathomable for most people to understand what that means. Uh, you know, some of it is circumstances. Uh, uh, the first year of Trump's year in office was also when the campaigns against the Islamic State uh, really came into full force, uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the Tigris River Valley in Iraq, as, as the Iraqi army pushed through to Crete uh, and up into Mosul, uh, as well as then, of course, the assault on Raqqa. Uh, in, in, in eastern Syria. So you had those, those large battles that required on behalf of the U.S. military to drop a lot of bombs. Um, right. As we all know, I mean, those cities are completely devastated. People are going to be buried forever under the rubble. Uh, it's sickening. It's absolutely sickening what has occurred in terms of uh, the destruction that has been wrought. Um, you know, but, it, but it's also true that Trump has let the military do whatever they want. Um, and he has basically given them that uh, a, a blank check. Uh, he's basically said to all the combatant commanders, we have these different combatant commands around the world, Pacific Command, Central Command, Southern Command, you know, they have regional responsibilities, Africa Command. Uh, he's basically said to them, hey, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and if you had seen uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, this week on Democracy Now! or last week on Democracy Now!, uh, he talks about how we have military operations in 76 countries right now. Not troops in wow. 76 countries, but active military operations in 76 countries. Our Special Operations Command is completely uh, uh, under uh, 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 no uh, oversight. Uh, the CIA, of course, is absolutely under no oversight. And, and uh, surprisingly, last fall, the CIA made it known that it was launching a large uh, uh, military, paramilitary campaign in Afghanistan, 
that very similar to what they did in Vietnam with the Operation Phoenix program, which assassinated tens and tens of thousands of people, so many of them innocent. Um, but one of the things I think people need to, to, to get about the military is that Trump's only been in office a year. This military that is now killing all these people every 12 minutes, like you said, didn't just appear. You know, I, I think a lot of times people think about not just the military, but say like ICE, you know, or, or, or any of these other organizations, uh, the FBI or the CIA or the NSA or whoever, as something like, uh, uh, you all know, in, uh, I never read the books, and I guess it happened in the books as well, but in the movie, the Lord of the Rings movie, where the, the bad guy, uh, I can't remember what the bad guy's name was, the bad wizard or whatever, but I remember this scene. And he's making the evil creatures. He's making these ogres or orcs or, or trolls or whatever they are. And it, they just come out of like a vat of lava. And that's not how this happened. All yeah. these guys who are in the military who are dropping these bombs, uh, all these pilots, these men and women who are killing these people every day, none of whom seem to have any conscience and are resigning. You know, I mean, they are just immolating people every day, burning people to death every 12 minutes, like you said. And... None of them are, are – and they all joined up over the last 10, 20 years. It takes two or three years to make a pilot in the Air Force or the Navy or the Marine Corps or you know, two years to make an Army attack helicopter pilot. So these, these men and women all joined under Obama or under Bush or under Clinton. Uh, they didn't just appear. And you see it throughout. Where is any type of conscience in the military? Where is any type of – of, of, of degree of, 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 of uh, moral, uh, 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 moral law, moral authority, moral uh, 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 awareness. Uh, I mean, just today, uh, 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 the news is that the Pentagon says they're willing to, ha to house 20,000 migrant children on what? military bases in Texas and Arkansas. Yeah, the, the uh, Pentagon said that. Yeah, tw yeah. So, so where you know, it, it, there's this notion that somehow the military is above Trump. That the, the generals are somehow going to stop Trump from doing anything too bad. That if the war gets out of hand, the generals will step in. It will never go too far. We'll never have nuclear war because the generals will step forward and say, "No, we're not going to do this, Mr. President." One, I ask anybody to say, "When has the generals ever done that?" You know, when <laughs> what's the example of a general saying, "No, we're not going to do that." If they have, it's been in cases, say, like General David Shoup, who fought the World War II. Uh, he was a Marine officer, and he stood up against the Vietnam War early on. But a guy like that just gets pushed aside, and there are 10 other generals who are willing to take his place. So, right. you know, I mean, so you have to look at this is not a Trump thing. This is a military thing, and this is an American society thing, too, because now you really see the nexus of the violence that our society uh, uh, depends upon, thrives upon, and and I, I believe we have a cult of of of, of you know violence is our, our kind of, is our religion. You know uh, everything is a violence based solution, and now you really see that where you have uh, uh, the violence that we do here at home mixed with the violence overseas, and that's a good example is a story today about how yeah the Pentagon is saying yeah those twenty thousand we'll house up to twenty thousand children who we have ripped away from their parents. We'll put them on our military bases, no problem. And I think what General Mattis said in, in relation to that was that we do whatever is in the best interest or whatever is good for our country. So, you know, getting back to it again, like it's, it's not so much Trump, but it, it, this military just didn't spring out of nowhere. This is a military that 
wants to kill, looks to kill, is happy to kill because it believes it's serving its own interests. And of course, they also see themselves in many ways. I, uh, I've spoken about this for, for uh, the better part of a year now, that if you look at the writings and the speeches and what men like General Mattis or John Kelly, who is the White House chief of staff, they see themselves as modern day centurions. They see themselves as modern day legionnaires, that they are the men who are responsible for defending this empire. Uh, and they will do it without question, without thought. And of course, there's no moral authority greater than themselves within the military because they have this special honor of guarding the republic or guarding the empire. And so anything they do is justified by their own positions and by who they are. And so that's how you have, exactly. You have, and a lot of these people who are being killed every day, right, are, are being killed by drone, by drone operators up in upstate New York or out in Nevada or out in uh, 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 California. And, you know, I mean, these are kill, people are being killed overseas by men and women who get back in their cars and go home and, and watch, uh, you know, episodes of uh, 13 Reasons Why or The Staircase or whatever the big thing is on Netflix right now every night with their wife and kids. Jeez, that's a nasty... So but very, very true uh, analysis. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I wanted to ask for um, any thoughts you might have uh, and if we could just get into uh, how the political establishment basically is so hands-off with whatever the military does. And I think right now it's showing itself so um, obviously if you just read the rare news reports that we get but especially now because in Yemen we're seeing attacks on the port city of Hodeida and it's a huge, a, a hugely crucial uh, only way that the Yemeni people are getting food and, and other supplies into their country. Um, you've got blockades around the country that's cutting them off. And it's clear that if you just did minimal reading of the news that there are operations going on with zero oversight, with zero interest um, from Congress and that Pentagon is hiding a ton of military operations that are going on with Saudi Arabia and other countries, um, and yet uh, the political establishment seems to have no appetite for doing anything on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, uh, Even uh, in the case of, of you know, well, let's say, um, to tie into what Rangan uh, was just uh, speaking about, um, uh, there has been uh, a, a political uproar about war uh, recently, but it was the fact that we may not be having a war in <laughs> Korea. Um, so you have the, the Democrats in, in Congress, uh, particularly in the Senate, who have uh, been very vocal uh, about the fact that we don't want our troops pulled out. You have uh, people like Rachel Maddow on MSNBC who are just going crazy at the thought that uh, uh, we may actually have a, a breakthrough for peace. Uh, we may be able to denuclearize uh, uh, Korea. And hey, I, I just like Trump. I'm from, I'm from New York originally, so I've known Trump my whole life. I, I've disliked Trump longer than most people have just because of my proximity to him, right? Because having to always have heard about him. But, you know, if, if he can achieve a denuclearization of Korea, that is terrific. You know, I mean, that is great. But there is such a backlash against it 
among uh, liberals, among liberal Democrats. And that's really the only uh, 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 backlash uh, uh, with any meaning, uh, with any effect that we have seen over the last last however many years, 17 years, 18 years, um, with, with exception against the Iraq war uh, in the middle, uh, 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 you know, about uh, about 13 years or so ago uh, in 2006, 2007. Uh, but, uh, you know, you do. An interesting thing about this backlash against Korea, uh, Kevin, is that so we do have some members of Congress who have stood up against what is occurring in Yemen. And what is occurring in Yemen is completely backed by the United States. It would not be possible, this, this massacre of tens of thousands of people, the, the potential starvation of a couple million people, uh, a million plus people with cholera. I mean, the worst human rights catastrophe uh, as declared by multiple international organizations uh, that we've, we, we've seen in, 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 in decades, basically. Uh, and it would not be possible without support of the United States military. Uh, you know, it's not just our, our, our fighter planes and our bombs that we've provided and supplied, but it's also our mid-air refueling, the Saudi jets that are killing the people, dropping the bombs. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 and there was this push, actually, it's interesting because there was this push by Democrats to provide smart bombs to Saudi Arabia. Some of the people in Obama's Defense Department were arguing this, um, and they will be the same people that go into the next Democratic administration. So the civilian right. people, right? And, and what their argument was that we need to provide smart bombs to Saudi Arabia because this way they won't accidentally hit the hospitals and the markets and and, 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 the, and the reality is though is that no, when we gave them the smart bombs, they actually utilize those to target those facilities. So smart right. bombs are great, particularly if you want to hit sensitive infrastructure, critical infrastructure, like the Saudi have been doing in Yemen, bombing hospitals, bridges, uh, ports, uh, warehouses, you know, just to make the people suffer. Um, all this would not be possible without, without the American support. Those, those Saudi uh, jet fighters can't reach their targets without American uh, aerial refueler tanker aircraft refueling them mid-flight, uh, as well as, too, we know that the United Arab Emirates is on the ground there, uh, torturing people, sexually abusing people in their in their prisons, uh, and there are American uh, military officers and American civilian uh, operatives, uh, CIA, uh, who are there as well. We know this, uh, uh, and they leave the room uh, when these people get tortured. Uh, you know, but that's the same thing as we we've done ourselves at numerous black sites as well as at Guantanamo. So, uh, but. It, it, Getting back to us saying about to tie Korea and Yemen together and to show the whole force of all this, the same the person who has led in uh, in the Congress against what we're doing in Yemen has been Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Now mm -hmm. Chris Murphy is also the the along with Tammy Duckworth, who's a veteran herself, um, is also the man who has co-authored or co-led the resolution uh, by the Senate Democrats to make sure that American troops are not pulled out of Korea. Uh, he's also oh. a huge sponsor, right? I mean, he's also a huge sponsor of the new uh, nuclear missile submarines that will cost about $10 billion a piece. Uh, you know, he's a huge supporter of the Trident nuclear missile, which the nuclear subs carry, which, you know, depending upon the payload, they have either between 1,000 and 5,000 Hiroshima bombs on each missile, and each of those boats carry 
uh, I'll tell my, I can't remember all that, 12 or 50. I mean, each of those boats, each of those submarines can destroy the world itself, basically. Uh, and he is a huge supporter of those. He wants more of those. He wants the next generation. He wants the $10 billion one a piece, you know, for each of these submarines. Um, uh, he doesn't want peace in Korea. He wants American troops to stay in Korea forever. He wants to have this hostility. But on Yemen, he is good. So it's a farce. Uh, Code Pink held a, a, a testimony on uh, on uh, endless war uh, in uh, the House of Representatives uh, back in either March or April, and uh, a bunch of progressive ha uh, House members showed up for it. And then, as they left, Code Pink asked these men and women, these members of Congress, these progressive members of Congress, if they would pledge to not take money from defense corporations. And only two of them, only two, out of say like a dozen or 15 who showed up for this hearing, only two as they were leaving pledged they would not take money from defense corporations. Who were the two? Who were the two? So, I, I actually, off the top of my head, as I was telling you that story, Rania, I was thinking, oh shit. Who are the I can't two? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So uh, am I allowed to curse on this show? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We well, wouldn't have made it yeah, through I, 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 the last yeah, five years yeah. without cursing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, I, I've heard this show plenty of times before, and, and, and I know wrong is mouth. And, uh, yeah, you know, so. I have a really bad mouth. I, have, I just get so mad. Well, <laughs> uh, but also, too, right? Aren't, aren't those of us who, who curse supposedly more intelligent? Isn't that what all the academic that, studies say or something like totally. that? Totally. I'm just going to go with that because it works. Um, Matthew, I'd really love to, I'd really love for you to, if you can just kind of like, maybe just briefly go over um, your own transportation or transportation transformation um, in terms of how you view the military, how you view American wars. Um, I mean, because you did resign um, basically beca because you were against what was taking place. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I went into the Marine Corps after college. I graduated college in 95 and I worked in finance and I was basically bored and uh, I joined the Marine Corps and became an officer in the Marine Corps. And uh, my first experience with uh, the betrayal of the military uh, really towards its own people, uh, of course, occurred uh, in uh, with the Iraq War. And at the beginning of the Iraq War, I was working uh, for the Secretary of the Navy. I was the junior Marine officer on his staff. And one of my jobs was I had to be the liaison to the White House for the Secretary. And um, the second Marine, I believe he was the second Marine who was killed in the Iraq invasion in uh, 03. Uh, the White House sends a condolence letter and it gets returned. The address was bad. You know, 19-year-old kid, of course, he's going to have the wrong address on his, what we call a red, uh, a record of emergency data. And mm -hmm. uh, my boss, who was the executive assistant to the secretary, said to me, hey, Captain Ho, you are now going to call every casualty officer uh, and make sure their addresses are correct. Well, so what that, that means is that me calling down from the Secretary of Navy's office to every Marine Corps captain and major who's dealing with a family who's just had a kid killed in or a husband killed in in Iraq, um, I hear a lot of these stories about how screwed up the casualty process is. How how just you know mm. I, a lot of people will remember uh, at that time in 0304, Walter Reed and Bethesda military hospitals were sending bills to the families of of, of the men and women who were wounded there. Uh, Jesus. People bills for their funerals and things like that. 
and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there were so many things, but basically what I saw was this, this, uh, you know, shut it down. Don't say anything, keep it quiet as opposed to taking care of, uh, these young men and women and their families. Um, and then of course, too, being there, uh, being around and, and seeing what was occurring, uh, reading the intelligence every day. Uh, and I had friends, uh, who were in Iraq at the time, and they would email me, and, and they would say, you know, you work for the Secretary of Navy. What the fuck is going on? This is this is it, it, this is incredibly insane over here right now. Um, but mm. coming out of all the senior leadership's mouths was, of course, everything's going well. We'll be down to thirty thousand troops in Iraq by two thousand by September two thousand three. On and on and on. But anyway, so that that was basically my whole time. Went to Iraq twice. Uh, you know, and. I left the Marine Corps and I ended up going into the State Department and I went to Afghanistan on a, a, with a provincial reconstruction team in 2009. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's hard to, 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 to put this all succinctly or concisely, but, you know, basically I kept trying to give it more chances. I kept wanting to give it mm-hmm. more chances. I, kept, I didn't want to be wrong about this. I didn't want, want to be wrong about myself. I didn't want to be an accessory to this organized murder that was occurring. Um, I, I, I didn't want to believe that the mistakes we had made uh, in, in previous uh, generations of American history, which I was well aware of, uh, whether it was what we did to the Native Americans, what we had done in Central mm-hmm. America, what we had done in Vietnam, et cetera. I just didn't want to believe that we were doing the same things again. Uh, then in 09, I really did think that Obama was going to be different. I thought Petraeus was going to be different. And if you look and you see at what uh, Petraeus says when he takes over Central Command, uh, that he's gonna, uh, we're gonna go for a political solution in Afghanistan, just like we did in Iraq. And I thought, okay, maybe it's gonna be different. Uh, Obama comes into office, I go to Afghanistan, uh, I'm in a pretty senior position there. Uh, uh, and I thought, because I was a political officer there, my job would be to help bring about an end of the conflict. Uh, you know, you meet with Taliban interlocker, uh, 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 Taliban representatives, uh, middlemen, um, basically, uh, and we actually had offers uh, to negotiate, and we are told just flat out, there's no negotiation, there's only winning. And then, of course, Obama <laughs> escalates the war. Um, so it was the same thing. The, 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 the Democrats were no different than Republicans. The idea being that this, we have to have a military victory for our president. We have to make Obama a better wartime president than Bush. And, of course, you can see that right in 2012 at the Democratic National Convention, the chance of USA, 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 and every other speaker is bringing up who's the man who shot bin Laden, you know, Obama, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, and so (laughs) for me, it was it was just a very bitter pill to swallow. Um, I'm embarrassed that it took me so long to do so. Uh, you know, I deal with, and I'm very open about uh, it, the term is the clinical term is moral injury. Uh, the the, vet, the Veterans Administration just put out a, a another suicide report uh, this past uh, uh, this past week, uh, and 20 veterans a day are killing themselves. Um, to get an idea of what that actually means, about 100 adults a day kill themselves in the United States, a, a little more than that, and about 20 veterans a day kill themselves. So roughly uh, 15 to 20 percent of all suicides are by veterans, but veterans wow. make up less than veterans make up less than eight percent of the population. And when you start to look at wartime veterans, the numbers go off the charts. 
So for e even the older veterans, World War II veterans kill themselves at a rate four times higher than what their civilian peers do. Uh, for uh, young men, for the youngest veterans, 18 to 29, they kill themselves at a rate six times higher than what uh, their civilian peers do. Uh, and then when we look at infantry units, we, we, we've tracked some infantry units, and they kill themselves at a rate 14 times higher than other young men their age who didn't serve, who didn't go to war. Who, uh, so, uh, it, it, but what it comes back to is this idea of guilt, this idea of moral injury, this idea of taking part. And that's what we see over and over again. Uh, it's, it's, it's not PTSD per se. It's not the flashbacks. It's not the fear. It's not because things were blown, you know, something blew up and I'm scared. Uh, it is the guilt. Uh, some of it's survivor's guilt. I didn't say of my friends or whatever, but a lot of it is guilt in taking part of what is best described as organized murder. Um, you know, and so by 09, when I'm in Afghanistan, I'm there for five months and the same things are happening in Afghanistan that happened in Iraq, the same exact stuff. Uh, uh, and actually uh, worse because the corruption in Afghanistan was, was worse than in Iraq. And by that, I mean wow. our complicity with the, the, the drug trade was, uh, you know, everyone talks about how the Taliban are the, uh, 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 the, 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 the big winners in the, in the drug harvest in Afghanistan. And that's not true. They are. They have become more recently because they've taken over more Helmand the province. They've gained more of the poppy crop, basically more of the, the lamb where the poppies are grown that make the opium and the heroin and everything. But uh, up until recently, the Afghan government was the biggest winner in the drug trade. I mean, the big when I was there, the biggest drug baron in Afghanistan was was the president of Afghanistan's brother. Ahmed Wali Karzai, or Karzai, his half-brother, he was the governor of Kandahar, and he controlled the drug trade in the south uh, of Afghanistan, and he was our guy, uh, and he was the president's half-brother. Uh, you know, so that type of, of complicity, uh, which again is nothing new. I mean, it's absolutely nothing new. It's, it's no different than what occurred in Southeast Asia in the 60s and 70s with our military and our CIA. I mean, certainly the, you talk to the Chinese about what the British did with the opium wars. I mean, this is nothing new. So, uh, uh, you know, it was that type of I was just broken and uh, I was done. Um, yeah. And so I quit. Uh, and since then, uh, because of, of a lot of uh, good people I've been in contact with, you know, I'm still here. Uh, tremendous psychological support from the VA, so I didn't kill myself, mm -hmm. which a lot of guys have done. Um, and more important, just as importantly, though, uh, within uh, the anti-war movement, the peace movement, the social justice movement, I've come across people who are much stronger than anyone I ever met in the military. Uh, mm -hmm. People who are much greater uh, uh, strength of character, of conviction, of passion, who have endured more, who've been willing to sacrifice, uh, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, of course, the military goes overseas, you can get blown up and killed or lose your legs or your testicles or your eyeballs or whatever. However, the right? I mean, it's true. I mean, like the, 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 the amputations, uh, uh, we actually developed, I, I, and when I say testicles, I'm not being funny. I mean, we, the U.S. military, uh, so many American boys, uh, because it's mainly boys who are, who are walking into patrols in Afghanistan or were walking the patrols in Afghanistan. And I say boys because these are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old kids. 
Yeah. Uh, they were their 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 balls were being blown off. Their testicles were being blown off. And we actually developed a special armor to protect them because that was where the wound occurs. When that when that landmine, when that uh, IED, that improvised explosion device goes off, that's what a lot of these kids were losing. And mm-hmm. I mean, like hundreds of kids, hundreds of young men don't have testicles right now because they were walking patrol in southern Afghanistan, basically ensuring that the Afghan government was maintaining control of the poppy crops, that the uh, government in Kabul was staying, and that we are taking part in this civil war. And I mean, hundreds of young, thousands of young men are like that right now in this country. So, it, you know, I mean, it, it's that type of, uh, uh, of you see that, you deal with it, you keep lying to yourself, you keep lying to yourself, you keep lying to yourself, and then finally you break. Uh, and that's what happened with me. And like I said, I regret that it took so long. Uh, uh, I don't have a time machine. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's basically, uh, you know, very long-winded account of it, yeah. So you bring up something that um, I wanted to broach in this episode just because I thought that you would have a fresh perspective um, to bring to it, even though it's been a part of the wide conversation in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, what, what does someone like it seems like having gone through, uh, you know, been in war zones, um, spent so many t- uh, so much time with these issues, uh, I, I'm thinking of of Anthony Bourdain and, and, and like what happened and, and how he traveled to all these countries and probably exposed himself to all kinds of injustices and inhumanities that are going on throughout the world, thinking, you know, like as someone with a conscience that like there's something I should be doing, isn't there anything more I can do? Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering like how, um, you know, again, like how you re- react to he- hearing stories like this of people who, who, who seem to be on our side, who are, are who are doing really good work, but 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 again, like they, I think you wrote about this in a post when you were talking about Robin Williams. Like you get to the cliff and you just can't pull yourself back. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, you, you go through therapy. You go. You're in your recovery, and I, I think the analogy or the imagery I used with when I was talking about Rob Williams' death a few years ago. Um, and the same now with, like, say, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade, that's the two recent high-profile suicides, uh, uh, is that you, you've basically, you feel like you've built a new house for yourself. But the foundation and the floor are the same rotted uh, 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 foundation and floor that you had before. And so it's very easy for you to fall through that flooring because the foundation of you is still the same. All those experiences are still there. What's, what's that expression? You may be done with the past, but the past is not done with you. All that stuff is still there. And so you have to come to this point where you realize that, look, I'm going to be managing this for the rest of my life and I need to accept it and make peace with it, but it's something I have to manage. And then what do I do? What do I do to make up for it? Uh, I, I'm a part of an organization called Veterans for Peace. One of the things we do is we send delegations out. We have, uh, you know, uh, American veterans, men and women, who served in, you know, the Army of Empire. You know, I mean, to, and that's not hyperbole. We have 800 bases around the world. I mean, how else do you describe a, an empire than someone who has 800 military bases around the world? Like we said earlier, we have 76 uh, active uh, uh, combat operations around the world, or at least operations where our military is 
actively working in some armed or uh, support capacity. Uh, so what we do is, is, is we, uh, uh, I've been on these delegations, you know, I, I, I went with, uh, uh, I was in Standing Rock uh, for a while, uh, got arrested there, uh, you know, and uh, that was the first time I ever felt like I was serving my country, serving my people when I was arrested at Standing Rock. I've been to Okinawa. Uh, I was based in Okinawa with the Marine Corps. I've now gone back to Okinawa and I've stood with and, and been hauled off by the Japanese police alongside of the Okinawans who for so many years, for, for, well, for, for seven decades, have endured just a legacy of, of you know, you talk about the rape, uh, of, of rape culture, uh, uh, who endured being a military colony under the United States for four decades. Uh, where they had no political freedom, they had no economic freedom. It's interesting with Okinawa, the same things that we uh, uh, screamed about and, 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 and I was uh, uh, indoctrinated about, taught about, about the evils of the Soviet system, the evils of East Germany, of, of East Berlin, were the same things that we were doing to the Okinawans up until the 70s. Uh, and then, then the rape culture continued and still continues in Okinawa. I mean, for, for however many decades, five, six decades, if you were an American in Okinawa, uh, American service member in Okinawa, and you raped an Okinawan, you raped an Okinawan boy or girl or, or woman or, or man or, or, or whatnot, the worst that was going to happen to you was that you were going to get sent back to the United States. That was the worst. That was gonna, and that went on for decades. You know, I mean, so so I, I've been alongside the Okinawans, uh, along with other veterans, uh, you know, as they, they, they try and save their island because the American military and the Japanese government continue to want to expand uh, the military bases there. They continue to want to destroy the jungles, destroy the seas. Uh, I've been to Palestine uh, with Veterans for Peace, you know, uh, and that was very difficult. Myself and the other Iraq and Afghan vets who were there, very difficult for us because uh, what we saw the Israeli army doing, which is an army of occupation, was the same thing that we were doing to the Iraqis and to the Afghans. So when we saw the Israeli army kicking open doors, going into Palestinian homes, uh, shaking down people in the middle of the streets, uh, arresting people, uh, you know, and of course, then we were, I was shot at, in 18 days in Palestine, I was shot at four times. Uh, you know, and have weapons pointed at me like three or four other times. I mean, just, wow. I mean, it just, just, I mean, and, and when I say shot at, like, there was live fire used. I mean, first time I'd heard bullets crack over my head in over 10 years, almost 10 years, basically. But also, too, I mean, tear gas canisters shot right at your face, right at your chest level. Uh, you know, I mean, it, so, but what, what I'm, this all goes to say is that when we do this, when as veterans, when we do, when we go abroad and we we stand alongside in solidarity with these anti-occupation forces, with these uh, uh, with these with these uh, indigenous, uh, uh, you know, the Palestinians, the Okinawans, the Native Americans. Uh, when we stand, I, I went to Charlottesville uh, uh, with another organization last summer, you know, after everything happened there. And, and you know, we, so we have veterans alongside a student uh, body from uh, a predominantly black student body from Howard University. What that does is uh, it has a, a, a tremendous meaning, of course, for those that we're in alliance with. And it's solidarity and it helps them. And, and of, of course, they're up against tremendous 
uh, oppression. I mean, hey, 10 American veterans going to Palestine is nothing compared, right, to the $12 million a day that the United States gives to the Israeli military, right? We give, we give them about $12 million every day. Uh, uh, so it's really not much, but it, it's moral, but, but it, it means something morally, spiritually, uh, uh, it, it's a help. But then for us, though, those of us who've taken part in the Iraq and the Afghan wars or the Vietnam War or in Grenada or Panama, uh, you know, or, or, or the Gulf War, all these things where, where just this, again, organized murder occurred uh, uh, and that we took part in willingly, voluntarily. A guy like me, three times I went to war. How come it took me three times to, 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 get, the, to get the courage? And that's why I said earlier about how the people in the peace movement are stronger than the people in the military, because it was easier for me to go to war three times, risk being killed, risk losing everything, risk losing my legs, my eyes, my arms, whatever, losing my life, than it was for me to do what was right, to acknowledge what was the truth, to stand up against what I knew was inherently wrong. Um, so for when we do these kinds of things, and I think Anthony Bourdain was doing that a lot. You know, you brought up, he's got these, he, he watched his shows and he always spoke about the political, the political issues, the historical issues. Uh, he, you know, he had this the episode where he went to Gaza. Uh, there's this quote that's been circulated around on Facebook over and over again, his comments on Henry Kissinger, you know, and he said that back in 02. You know, I mean, I think it's been very much in vogue in the last three or four years to, to, uh, make note of what a war criminal Kissinger is, but Bourdain was saying this for almost 20 years. Um, so I think that was a form of trying to heal for him as well, was to go and tell these stories because he saw how bad of it. And, and so by how complicit then are we all in this system? We all pay taxes into it, or we all, uh, you know, uh, are not standing up again, whatever it is, you know, I mean, so, um, uh, it, it's uh, the the redemption that you try to find, the healing that needs to occur, uh, is uh, an ongoing process, a forever process, because you took part in a great wrong. You took part in uh, uh, something that you didn't think you were going to do because. You know, we all join the military for different reasons. Uh, uh, many, many men and women join because of, of economics, you know, because of jobs, because of the opportunity to go to college, to get out of a, situ a certain situation. Uh, uh, but uh, I think most of us also, too, when we join, we join uh, thinking we're going to be doing the right thing, thinking that we're going to make a difference, thinking that we're going to be a hero, a good guy, that we're going to be the guy with the white hat on. And it turns out that that's not the case. And we take part in something that is awful, that is criminal, uh, that is against everything that we were taught as young children. Um, and how do you repair that? Uh, it, I don't think it ever gets repaired. I think the only thing you can do is try and find the courage to uh, act in a way that is consistent what you believe to be morally correct or spiritually correct or eth uh, uh, ethically you know, correct or what is in line with your values and principles and, and everything else. So let me ask you about uh, this case that I've closely followed, Reality Winner, because I think this is a good opportunity to get into uh, what's going through someone who's in the armed forces who has an opportunity to engage in some kind of resistance. You know, the kind of risks that you're 
undertaking. And I, I'd say that probably people who listen to our show would think, you know, you, you have to do this. Like when you see what's going on, what um, the country is responsible for, you, you have to turn. But it's obviously more complex when you're so um, involved and when there's so much power that the U.S. military industrial complex has to bring to bear upon you through different mechanisms, especially the criminal punishment system that we have in the country. So so she's pleading guilty. It was reported this past week that she's going to plead guilty. Um, for people who maybe don't remember, she was accused of uh, releasing this report um, from the NSA that alleged that there was some interference, um, uh, for, uh, that there were hackers um, that were going into the voter registration systems during the 2016 election, and, and she believed that this was something that needed to be part of a larger conversation um, under Donald Trump, and um, and the whole force of the government has been brought to bear upon her. So I just wanted to get your take and reaction to, you know, she's obviously not the first we've had, uh, Chelsea Manning, we've had other whistleblowers that are going through um, similar sets of circumstances, you know, seeing what they can do themselves to help make the world a better place. But what goes on through a person's mind when they have this opportunity? It's a hard decision for someone to make. Uh, you hear often from um, men and women, um, uh, and they say, I wish I could do what you did, or, or I wish I could do what uh, Ed Snowden did, or Tom Drake, or, uh, you know, uh, John Kiriakou, or any of these. Uh, and then immediately afterwards, almost always, it's, but I've got two kids, and they're going to college in a few years. And so people really get tied down by the golden handcuffs, um, you know, and whether it's a legitimate excuse or just a, 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 a something to rationalize their inaction. Um, but, you know, um, and, and actually, too, first, I want to go back to what I was saying about all those delegations I was on, because I realized how eye-centric it was, how Matt Ho, uh, white man going to save all these people, uh, that was, you know, I just want to make sure people understand that the real heroes in all those stories are the people who are standing up against the American government, the Japanese government, the, pal the Israeli government, you know, this is not a typical, you know, I, I, hey, I love myself as much as any white guy does, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but, you know, just just to clarify uh, that. But, but um, you know, I, I think what you see it, with, in the case with Rally Winner and, and Kevin, you know, and Ryan, thank you guys for covering that because it's really been absent, you know, outside of, of uh, programs like yours or, of course, in The Intercept or, or wherever. Uh, and one of the things, again, I, I mentioned Seymour Hirsch uh, on Democracy Now! And, and if folks haven't seen that, uh, interview with him, an hour-long interview with him. He's got his new book, his, his, his memoir coming out or whatever. But he talks about uh, how when he reported on the My Lai massacre, and this is something I didn't know, uh, it, it, it went through an organization called um, Dissent News Service, uh, this independent anti-war organization. That's how it got reported. And then it got picked up by all these newspapers around the country. So the mm. stuff that you guys do, uh, independent journalism, uh, there, you know, it goes back decades how important it is because the mainstream uh, organizations are not going to cover it. Or they're going right. to cover covering reality's story now where it's like a three-paragraph uh, blurb doesn't go on any details, doesn't talk about how she was mistreated, about how, I mean, all kinds of stuff, the pressure she's under, uh, how the Espionage Act has been used 
you know, under President Obama, now under President Trump, to just go after whistleblowers, anybody who threatens uh, the establishment. Uh, one thing I think it's important to understand when you look at, say, reality story, uh, as well as everyone else, Ed Snowden, Chelsea Manning, um, is this what it's called the Insider Threat Program. And I don't know if you guys have discussed this or not, but the Insider Threat Program uh, is this uh, United States government uh, program that encourages uh, uh, employees of the federal government to report on any of their colleagues that are acting suspiciously. And if you do so, you can actually be rewarded. I mean, there are rewards <laughs> in place. There's an incentive system in place. It can help you get promoted. Uh, you know, phone calls, emails, all those things are being screened now. So the surveillance that is going on uh, on active duty military, on uh, civilian employees, on contractors of the federal government, particularly in the national security uh, uh, realm, is intense. It, it, is, it is very much, uh, uh, you know, the East, uh, a lot of people say this, and it's true. If you talk to guys like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the older guys, uh, like uh, uh, the older whistleblowers, like Bill Binney or, or Ray McGovern, the, the guys who were active in the NSA and the CIA during the Cold War, they'll say, you know, the, KG, the, 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 the East German Stasi or the Russian or the Soviet Union KGB, they, this was a, a, a wet dream of theirs to have the surveillance capabilities that the American government has now. And particularly on their own, on their own phone and computer systems, they can watch, they can screen, they can collect everything. So for someone like Reality to do what she did, uh, she must have known at some, in some, some level that she was going to get caught. She must have known yeah. that, that, that it was, this was going to happen. Uh, and for a young woman who was, I think she was 24 at the time, maybe 25. I know she just turned 26 recently yeah. to, to, to take this on, to go up against uh, and knowing and she, everything that she, she knew. Because alongside this insider threat program, they also have briefings. So just like anyone out there who's in corporate America and you have all your your training, you have your, your, your uh, sexual harassment training, you have your equal opportunity training, you have your drug and alcohol training, all that type of, 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 of training. They also have this insider threat training for the federal government, and they have organizational charts uh, or, or, or that show like the interconnection between all these uh, criminals, basically, as the federal government or terrorists. And so you see people like uh, a guy like Tom Drake, who the you know federal government the FBI raided his home uh, because he was blowing the whistle on on some activities at the NSA he had gone to the Baltimore Sun Tom the FBI raided his home they retroactively classify information you know against him uh, that he had documents at home and they retroactively classified uh, all this stuff is public knowledge but within the federal government. When you're going through these trainings, you are taught that these people like Tom Drake, Ed Snowden, Chelsea Manning, they're terrorists. They're just as bad as al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And they're actually included on the same slide set, on the same slide deck. These men and women are included. So reality was, must have been aware of this. Uh, she must have, and she, of course, would then know uh, because she's obviously a smart person, very intelligent uh, she must have done some research on her own and everything. She must know that Ed Snowden is in 
basically permanent exile. She must know that Julian Assange has been for six years in, in uh, you know, and I, I've had the opportunity. I don't know if you, I'm sure you guys have too, but I've visited uh, Julian in the embassy in London. And I mean, he's in a, a, a one floor uh, building with a, or one floor embassy with about three rooms. I mean, it's like the size of my one bedroom apartment. You know, uh, and he's been there for six years. Uh, uh, reality must have known of the torture uh, that Chelsea Manning went through. You know, so on and on and on. Must have known about John Kiriakou and Jeff Sterling, who were put in prison for talking about torture and talking about a failed CIA uh, uh, a plan to uh, uh, basically uh, 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 fool the Iranians about nuclear weapons, but I think also to try and spark that whole fraud about the Iran has nuclear weapons. Uh, so she did, and she went up against all this. Uh, the other thing I think it's important to understand, too, is the anger that goes against these people. How dare she stand up to us? How dare she question us? How dare, you know, so uh, the full weight of the intelligence community, the military comes down on her. And that's why I think as you get back to what Kevin said early on in this conversation about the political uh, 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 incentives behind being pro-military, uh, the, uh, uh, the patriotic correctness, as somebody just said recently on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. Patriotic uh, that correctness, everyone, I like yeah, that. Yeah, that everyone is obliged to follow, that everyone just, just goes forward. That's why uh, you can have uh, the document that reality supposedly leaked uh, uh, be public knowledge. Uh, that information then be confirmed by multiple sources afterwards. Uh, you could have people like Diane Feinstein, you know, Senator Feinstein, talking about it openly, but no mention of her. You know, so why, just like yeah. John Kiriakou, who was the only person to talk about torture, he went to prison, while no one who tortured went to prison, Reality Winner is the only person to have shown like real evidence of, you know, foreign tampering in the elections. Um, and she's in jail, but no one else is, you know, because she talked about it. She had the, the, the audacity to speak against these people. And again, like we were talking earlier about how they see themselves. They see themselves as the guardian of the republic. They view themselves on a moral level higher than the rest of us. Um, and so the fact that you're, uh, it, it's, they, they, they have a, 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 a they, they view themselves in a, 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 at a clerical level, in a clerical status. How dare uh, they are infallible. They are uh, just as you would have in the Catholic Church, how the priests are untouchable. That's how them, these men and women see themselves. I want to uh, ask you something. I want to ask you something about the, like the, what you're talking about, this idea in relation to Israel, though. Um, you know, I always wonder uh, among these sorts of, you know, uh, people who view themselves as like on the, like, the van, they're the vanguard of like protecting American empire, um, how they actually view Israel. Uh, there was this article recently in the New Yorker um, about how like every president starting with uh, Bill Clinton has signed a secret letter with the Israelis promising uh, not to challenge their nuclear uh, weapons program, which is completely unregulated. And, um, you know, they're not a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty. And meanwhile, the U.S. is claiming that they that we have to attack Iran in order to stop a nuclear weapons program that they don't even have. 
um, because nuclear weapons are really dangerous in the Middle East. But I guess my question is, is how do these kinds of people, like when you were inside the military machinery, how do they view the Israelis? Because it seems like a lot of times, Israel, I mean, Israel's not America. Um, and a lot of times it's really, it's, it does seem like the Israeli government seems somewhat antagonistic to the Americans at times in terms of the way yeah. they behave towards, towards uh, the U.S. Well, I think a lot of it was that for uh, many years, for many decades, the Israelis were a testing ground for our weapon systems. Mm -hmm. So you had that type of um, relationship where in the 60s and particularly in the 70s and the 80s, when Israelis started really using our F-15s and F-16s and bombing all over Lebanon or, or, you know, bombing raids in different places, uh, as well, too, then our special operations community, uh, that relationship they have with the Israelis, I'm assuming the CIA and the Mossad, the same, because the Israelis uh, were doing real operations all the time, which excites mm -hmm. the military, which excites the CIA paramilitary guys, because here they are. These are guys actually out there doing it every day, and they're using our equipment, and it's working, and we've got this relationship. Uh, a lot of it's racial. Uh, they're white. The Israelis are white. I mean, it's that simple. The amount of racism that goes into our wars are underestimated. One thing I saw over and over again, same as with Vietnam, same with, with Korea, same as with fighting the Japanese, uh, the racism that occurs. It's not overt. It's not outspoken. You're not going to hear uh, around a planning session or around the map uh, a group of American officers uh, in lower ranks, you'll hear it, but among the officers, you won't. You won't hear them say these brown-skinned, you know, so-and-sos. But the attitude is there. How, how can these people, these mm. people, how can these people, you know, with their flip-flops and their pajamas, you know, living in caves, take us on? Who do they think they are? And so I think a lot of it's racial. That the, the Israelis are white. We align with them. Um, you know, of course, then too, there's the politics of it. You know, we all know uh, uh, very clearly. And if you don't get online uh, and look up the amount of uh, money your congressmen and or woman or woman and your senators receive from APAC, the American Israeli uh, Public Affairs Committee, uh, you know, and how much influence that has. That, of course, uh, uh, all trickles down. I mean, that, of course, it comes down into authorization, how much money we're going to give the Israelis uh, for their military, as well as how much money we're going to give our own military is influenced by that. You know, General Petraeus, about 10 years or so ago, said, uh, made a comment that our connection to Israel is causing us problems, which I think any sane person out there will, would agree with. And the backlash, mm -hmm. the backlash was so much that he had to come back and basically make an apology and basically restate what he had said and walk back from his comments. And this is General Petraeus. This is King David. This is the guy who won like, <laughs> the Super Bowl, right? This is the man who – they wanted to give this guy a fifth star, right? I mean they wanted to make – like that's how much they worship Petraeus. But when he crossed Israel, when he, he made uh, the, the, the very uh, – I think a lot of people say neutral comment that our relationship with Israel – uh, causes us problems uh, politically in the Middle East and is a spur for groups who want to fight us. Uh, I don't know anyone who could disagree with that. Whether or not you like it or not is one thing, but it's honest. 
And he had to walk that back. King David had to do that. So uh, I think there's all this that goes into it. Um, I can also tell you that there's a lot of respect in the American military for the Israelis because, again, they're always doing it. They're always the ones fighting. They, the myths of the Israeli military, <laughs> the myths of the wars, right? The myths of, of, like, of, of how they took on all these Arab armies. And it was, you know, just like the Alamo, except they won, you know, like that kind of thing. Like that all mm-hmm. exists in the American military about the Israel military. And then we get equipment from them. So one of the things that ties me to this very personally is that uh, in Iraq, I had Israeli-made bulldozers. I had the D9s. D9s mm. are, are very heavy, very large uh, bulldozers, uh, basically made originally for using in trash dumps and landfills. They're enormous. The blades are, are, are eight feet high, eight and a half feet high. Um, and uh, when we put our armor on them, our, they weighed 120,000 pounds. They were my bulldozers were actually heavier than our tanks, and we did in o six o seven in Ambar province, and I led this effort. You know something that haunts me. We we did uh, po- uh, population control, just like the Israelis taught us to do. We built giant earth walls around the cities, these Sunni cities. The the Sunnis, the people who lived there, could either only come in through one way, go out one way. Uh, if they didn't do what we wanted. Uh, and this was December and January. And anyone who knows who's been to Iraq knows that it's not hot in December and January. It's very no. cold, right? It, it, it is. That's what I say about Iraq. I say I never complained about the heat, but I bitched about the cold all the time. Um, yeah, even the, the heat, uh, even the heat's not as bad. Well, anyway, sorry. No. Even it's dry. It's like a dry heat. So it's, it's like not a dry as heat. Bad. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, being in the desert in California is much worse than being in the Iraqi uh, sun. But but anyway, mm-hmm. but yeah, we would we would shut down uh, if that population of that city didn't do what we wanted weren't acting the way we expected them to act, we would shut off kerosene shipments for four or five days and let the people oh. freeze. Wow. You know what I mean? Things like that. I mean, war crimes. That's sounds war like crime. Gaza. We, it sounds like what's done to Gaza. But like, it, yeah. That's exactly right. And what would be said would the generals or the colonels would say, we're learning this from the Israelis. This is, uh, we're doing the best population control known to man, and we learned it from the Israelis. They're the best at it, and that's what we're going to do. And that's what you we know, did. it's funny. It's funny they think they're the best at it because at the end of the day, you got ISIS. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's <laughs> so exactly I mean, right. That's, yes. Like, clearly, yes. it's not yeah. the most yep. successful, um, not the most successful design. But yeah, I see what you're saying. So that I mean, that yeah. would explain a lot. It's just you know, it's, it's. I remember at least under the Obama administration, maybe under the Obama administration, it was a little bit. Um, a, a bit of an exception because of the because Netanyahu and Obama hated each other so much, but people in the State Department were really like hostile about the Israelis. Like they don't like, they don't like them. They deal with them, but they don't like them. Um, and I don't know if that's just because the administrations were so like not getting along because ideologically, you know, you had a right wing Israeli government and then like a democratic administration that they didn't like. But I just always found that interesting that there are people who don't necessarily like the Israelis, but they just deal with them because they have to. Whereas with a country like Saudi Arabia, and again, this is just like with the few people I would speak to from the State Department. They genuinely seem to like the people from Saudi Arabia. Maybe because the Saudis bring them gifts and the Israelis uh, just yeah. like bully them. I don't know. But um, I always, always found that interesting. And so I was just wondering if it was a similar dynamic in the military. But it sounds more like there's actually sort of a brotherly love uh, for there's the a Israelis brother, like, yeah, in the it, military. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. A, there's, a, there's, a, there's this comradeship. There's this uh, brotherhood of arms, all that bullshit. Um, and they're buying our weapons. Uh, the generals like it because, um, 
you know, you know, between 70, 80 percent of, of, of American generals, when they retire, join the defense industry. So right. all the generals like it, because if you're the general who has had some role in the Israelis or the Saudis or whoever, uh, the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese buy our weapons now, right? We can't, uh, God forbid, we provide any support for Agent Orange cleanup or any support for picking up all the millions of tons of bombs that are still in the ground there in Vietnam. About a thousand people a year are killed in Vietnam from unexploded ordnance from our war there against them, mm-hmm. as well as too, every day in Vietnam, uh, a, a dozen, maybe two dozen kids are born with deformities from Agent Orange still. Every day. Um, we, and we don't provide, the American government provides hardly any support, but we sell them weapons now, right? I mean, but so, but if you're a colonel or general who's involved in that process, you have definitely got a job with Boeing or Northrop or Raytheon or whoever when you get out. Um, yeah. It's a good it, retirement it's, uh, plan. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful career. I mean, like in the sense of like, you're going to have a BMW five series, you're going to have a beach uh, you're going to have a beach house down in uh, the Outer Banks. I mean, you are going to do well. Like, your kids are going to be able to go to yeah. Vanderbilt. You know, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, it is. It is. And, it, and the, the reality of it is it's, it's, the money is all washed in blood. It's all washed. And as we said, the, the, one of the things with Veterans for Peace, one of the things that we try and educate on is that the, our wars overseas are no different than our wars here at home. That the, mm-hmm. the, the idea that... Uh, the fact that we've got 300 million guns in this country should be of no surprise because we're the biggest arms merchant in the world, right? We, we've killed right. well over a million people since 9-11 uh, overseas, well over a million people since 9-11 overseas. And we've got, what, two, two and a half million people in prison here. Like, it, 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 it looks different, but it's all the same. And like we said, now that we see the Pentagon is, hey, we'll, we'll house you. We'll, these kids we're going to take away from their parents. We've been taking away from parents. We'll house them. We'll house 20,000 of them. We've got, we've got 2,000 in, 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 in captivity right now, 2,000 so, children in captivity. And disgusting. Pentagon, hey, we'll, we'll house 10 times that number. No problem. Yeah. On that note, um, I'm really glad we got a chance to have you on. We got to talk about so much, and I learned a lot uh, from you. Uh, oh, so thank you, you so much yeah. for coming on, and thank you for like your voice and for doing what you do, because I know it's completely thankless. Um, you have very, very little out of it. Uh, you're definitely not going to end up with defense contracts or, <laughs> no, <laughs> or like no, no. a very good retirement plan where you get to like you know have a mansion and... But no, it's, yeah, it, really is, yeah. it really is thankless. It really, really is thankless. So I feel like it's really yeah. important to, to like demonstrate our appreciation for the kinds of things that you do. Well, thank you. Well, and 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 I tell you uh, again, you guys, uh, and and neither Ron nor Kevin, you know, asked me to say this, but for the folks who are listening, help these guys out. You know, I mean, <laughs> without their voices, without no, honestly, without your media, without your communication. We can't organize. We can't educate. We can't inform, right? We can't. If we're going to have a movement, we have to have media like yours. We have to have journalists like you two guys. Um, and you can't do it, of course, if you can't pay your bills, if you can't eat, you know, if you can't, you know, I mean, like all that kind of stuff. If you can't uh, purchase train tickets or bus tickets or plane tickets or whatever. Um, uh, so it's important that we support people like you because without you guys, without media like you. Again, we can't organize, we can't communicate, we can't educate, you know, we can't inspire. 
Uh, so yeah, it's so important what you guys are doing. So I, I really want to well, thank you. Well, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, you guys certainly really get a lot. Of I, I've seen both of your Twitter feeds. You guys get a lot more hate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so like, yeah. I don't know. I like, like to think too. of it. I like to think of it as love wrapped up in like barbed wire. <laughs> 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 yeah. but no, thank you for saying that. We really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, we're out of time. Thank you everybody for listening to the show. Uh, and Matthew, where can people follow you? Um, oh, like, I've to got to kind of keep up with yeah. you. I've got a blog, uh, MatthewHo.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-H-O-H.com. Yeah, very very original. Um, But, yeah, (laughs) I I post stuff there, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and to our listeners, we'll be back next week. For bonus material from this interview, please become a patron and support our show with a monthly pledge. You can find the bonus material at Patreon.com. Dot com if you are a patron already.